Welcome to SuccessfulSavior.org, the ministry of Harmony Primitive Baptist Church in Donaldson, Arkansas. This is Elder Dan Sammons preaching in our regular Sunday morning service. Brother Murray mentioned in his prayer something about remembrance. And I intend to be in 2 Peter chapter 3, and uh, the Lord being my helper, I will, I'm going to try to finish 2 Peter today. We've been going through that, but we've had a lot of topical sermons kind of sprinkled in here and there, and it's broken it up a little bit. By the way, I tend to, uh, on the sermon audio website, I tend to group sermons into categories, and so if you if you think those things were too broken up and you're in your own private studies, you want to go back and look through Second Peter, you can go out to that site and look at the series entitled Second Peter. And it'll pull up all those sermons in order. You could go back and listen to them if you wanted to, if you needed that guide in there. But that kind of pulls them together in a way sometimes that the chronology of preaching them and the timing of it doesn't uh, for those who are curious about that. But in this section of Scripture, this closing chapter of Peter's second epistle, I've kind of entitled this Mindful Remembrance. There's a huge part of the Lord's New Testament church which is just simply calling people to remember what is taught in the Word of God. We are very forgetful people. And no sooner do you walk out of this building, you might have heard something that really encouraged your heart or your soul or resonated with you, that Word of God written on your heart, you heard it declared from the pulpit and it, it really meant something to you, but the moment you walk out this door and then you're trying to figure out what you're going to have for lunch and then you're trying to get the kids ready for school and then you got to get ready for work, all this stuff kind of starts to fade on you again. And that's one of the needful purposes of the Lord's New Testament church is to bring you into mindful remembrance. Not just, I'm going to mention it to you, but I'm going to mention it to you in such a way that hopefully you'll be mindful of it. You will meditate on it and think about these things in a way that the world is not going to set these ideas before you and cause you to think about that. It's going to have a host of substitute thoughts that they're going to try to transplant into your mind over the course of the rest of the week. I was talking to Brother Mike this morning before everybody else got here, and he was talking about reading through the Bible. And he's read through the Bible a couple of times. He's reading through the New Testament right now. And that is an excellent practice to continue to reinforce mindful remembrance of the Word of God in your life. If you're experiencing spiritual malaise in this world, and you say, my, my heart feels cold, I feel distant from God. Well, as often as not, I think if you take an honest look at your life and how you're spending every minute of every day, you'd have to step back and say, I'm really responsible for creating that distance. You know, My heart is far from God because I've removed my heart from God. I'm not putting anything into that. If you thought about that in terms of any other relationship in your life, whether it's with your wife or with your kids or grandkids or whatever, and you just said, okay, I want to be really close to my grandkids. Let's use that one as an example. I want to be really close to my grandkids. And then you basically spent no time with your grandkids. It's going to be hard to build that relationship, is it not? It works precisely the same way in our relationship to God. The Bible says, draw near to God and He will draw near unto you, right? And uh, oftentimes our spiritual malaise, our spiritual coldness is nothing more than a manifestation of how we've placed distance between ourselves and God. So that's why mindful remembrance 
on Sunday morning in the Lord's New Testament church, as well as in your private studies and reading throughout the course of the week, is incredibly needful. Before I get going in, uh, in that third chapter of Second Peter, I want to show you something in Psalm 119. Now, Psalm 119 is a child of God's relationship to God's Word. And your homework assignment for this week is to read Psalm 119. And I am laying a heavy burden on you. I think it's the longest chapter in the Bible. But I am inclined to think you're able to do it. I'm going to show you how heavy this burden is. That's one, two, three, four. It's five pages. So I think you can get it done. Read a page a day, Monday through Friday, and you'll, you'll get it done. But it's really uh, talking about the relationship between a child of God and the Word of God. And uh, I just wanted to pull a few nuggets out of this to set our mind on the nature of that relationship. Psalm 119 and verse 9 says, Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereunto according to thy word. You want to know the right way to go? It's published for us here. We are to take heed to it. It's not enough that it's just published, right? You know, at times I've thought, you know, I need to have a little more control over what I eat and how much I eat. And I've thought, you know, I'm going to put a sign on my refrigerator so that I am reminded of it. Maybe you got a, you went to a, uh, you know, a family event or whatever, and there was somebody taking pictures, and you got this picture, and you're like, I don't like the way I look in this picture. Maybe I need to stick that on the refrigerator so that every time I'm pulling for the handle, I'll be like, yeah. Maybe I need to not do that, right? It's one thing to publish it and put it there. That's good. But it's not going to do you any good if you don't take heed to it, right? So you may have a Bible. You may be aware that it exists. You may believe that it's God's Word. You may even look at it occasionally, but it won't do you much good if you don't take heed to it. Any more than seeing my fat picture on the refrigerator, if it doesn't keep me from eating an extra piece of pie, it's not going to do me much good, right? So we got to apply ourselves to not only read the Word and understand it, but to actually take heed to it. And that's an important principle in describing the relationship between us and the Word of God. Turn over to 105. Well, that's a very common one. Thy Word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. You don't know where you're going in this life. You don't understand the things that are around you. The more you pour yourself into the Word of God, you will understand more about yourself more about the world that surrounds you and more about the God you love and worship and how He would have you live in the midst of those circumstances. Turn the page and look at Psalm, let's see, 109-114. Here's another one. Thou art my hiding place and my shield. That's speaking of God. I hope in Thy Word. Our hopes are found here. You know, we all too often are disappointed with the life that's out there for us. We find disappointment because the world offers up all sorts of vain things that you're supposed to hope for and put hope in. And many of them at times are unattainable. So you're going to be hopeless in that you, you just feel like I can't ever get there. The dangerous part of that is that you might actually attain some of those things. And then when you get there, you realize they don't fulfill you. So our hope is not in this world. It's not in the material things of this world. It's not in the carnal pursuits of this world. Though, if you just turn on the TV and turn on social media, it's going to convince you that that's where your hope is. That's where you find success. You go out there and you chase all these things. And when you get there, you're going to be a famous, wealthy 
person with lots of social media followers and it's just going to be wonderful. And almost to a person, those are some of the most miserable people on planet Earth. The life you see that people are living on Instagram and other social media platforms is a lie. It's a lie. I mean, it's just putting something out there that's showing you a very cleverly crafted view of what someone's life is that hides all of the difficulty and all of the pain and all of the anguish. And to the extent that you buy into that, you may begin to feel like, well, my life is not measuring up to this wonderful ideal that's out there. But that ideal is a lie anyway. You can know that now before you waste a lot of time pursuing it. If you know it's a lie, then you don't have to pursue it at all. You can choose to ignore it and maybe buy into it. And it may take you years. Maybe you get to that place where you're that person. And only then do you find out that it was a lie. Our hope is here. Our hope is in the Word of God. It's in eternal things. It's not in the temporal things of this world. And those things will not satisfy us because there's no hope in them. Look over at verse 130, not very far away. 129 says, Thy testimonies are wonderful, therefore doth my soul keep them. The entrance of thy words giveth light. It giveth understanding unto the simple. I've run into Christian people who say, well, I'm not educated. I haven't had this advanced schooling and stuff like that. I'm not an educated person. I'm a simple person is kind of the mindset there. There is an understanding and a wisdom that a child of God can have that is vastly superior to the education of this world. I can tell you my experience with highly educated people is that some of them are among the most ignorant, foolish people I have ever met in my entire life. And one of the greatest disservices to those people is that through their credentialing and their great education, they have been convinced and certified as the wise and prudent of this world. And when that happens to a lot of folks, they're basically uncorrectable. They certainly don't want to receive correction from a simple Galilean fisherman. You see that played out in the Old Testament or in the New Testament with the uh, Pharisees and whatnot. These were highly credentialed, educated people who knew the Word of God, and they they really couldn't be told anything by anybody. It's going to take a miraculous intervention on God's part, changing the heart of a man like that before he can receive some actual truth, particularly truth that's being promoted by a bunch of Galilean fishermen. The entrance of thy words giveth light. That's where the light is in this world. It's not in these, you know, degrees and uh, all the certifications of the wise and prudent. It giveth understanding unto the simple. See, you don't have to be, you don't have to have an incredible mind to be able to embrace and understand the things taught in the Word of God. You can be wise beyond any public education that you've ever had just by being knowledgeable about what the Word of God says about how you live. If you go back in the history of this church, for example, most of the people who founded this church, in fact, I don't know of any of them who were highly educated people. I dare say they were far more wise than this generation in many respects. They had fewer distractions. Maybe that made it easier for them in some respects to 
keep their eyes on the Word of God. They weren't dealing with social media and stuff like that. I bet they were working more hours than all of us were, though. God's people can be wise far beyond their instruction and beyond the things that the world would teach you in. And they can be wise enough to actually reject a lot of the things that the world would teach you and tell you're wise if you affirm them. So those are kind of some level setting on the issue of your relationship to the Word of God and the sort of things that you need to be brought into mindful remembrance of. Now there's kind of five things in this text I'm going to try to get to. Hopefully I'll reach them all. I'll try to keep my pace up. The first is the need for us to be reminded of the Word of God. The second is the reality that there are scoffers in this world. You ever lived as a Christian, had somebody scoff at that? The Bible affirms that that's a reality. It's going to be there. If you're not experiencing any of it, I would say that's at least some occasion for you to say, do I really live as a Christian? Or am I sort of blending in with the world to such a degree that I don't catch any flack for being a Christian because I'm not over the target? You know, when they, in World War II, when they would be flying those bombers over, they said, you're catching flack, you know you're over the target, right? They don't care if you're out there bombing a, a cornfield somewhere. But if you're over the factory you're trying to destroy, they're going to have guns around that and they're going to be trying to blow you out of the sky. Well, the same is true with your Christian life. If you catch zero flack for being a Christian... When you live in a rampantly wicked world, it's likely that you're not really over the target. They don't really see you as someone who's living as a Christian. You're not, you don't have much of a testimony. They don't see you as an object to attack. Uh, so that's something to consider. So there's going to be scoffers. There's something that we can see here about God's promise and His timing. Rarely does it conform to our timing and things. Some admonitions on how we ought to live. And then a benediction about how we are to grow and glorify God. So let's look at that first one, being reminded of the Word of God. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. This second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you, in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance. Well, there's the remembrance, right? Peter thought it was important enough to bring you to remembrance in these things. You see, the Christian faith is oftentimes going over the same things over and over again and continuing to reinforce those principles because it's very important. It's a stirring up of your pure mind. It's not a stirring up of your carnal mind. You have to have a spiritual mind, a pure mind, the mind of Christ, if you will, to be stirred up by these Christian precepts that he's calling them in remembrance of. It's important to know. By the way, if you accept the notion that not everyone has a spiritual mind, not all men are born again, and spiritual things only appeal to those who have a spiritual mind, but everybody's got a carnal mind, and on some level, even to God's people, carnal things appeal to you. If you're thinking about how to fill a church, how do we get more people in here? Would you be better off from a marketing perspective Choosing spiritual truths for which there is a limited audience or choosing carnal engagements for which everyone is an audience. You see what I'm saying? If you're selling a product, that is a no-brainer. It's just an absolute no-brainer. If you want to maximize your sales, you want to choose the thing that's going to appeal to the most people. And that's precisely what much in Christianity has gone towards. They've gone towards, let's make the church more carnal. Let's make it look more like a concert, a stand-up comedy routine, 
a social media presence, all these sorts of things. Let's do that because on some level that appeals to everybody. Right? This, however, is something that is intended to stir up the pure mind. The carnally minded, the unregenerate, are not going to find this entertaining. They're going to think, they're not going to find it profitable. They're going to find it engaging. They're going to find it foolishness. Right? So it is going to, it's going to have an effect of profiting God's people, provided they're willing to be brought into remembrance. And it's not going to draw the biggest crowds. That's just inevitable. Verse 2, that ye may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandments of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. So right there you've got a reference to these things were taught in the Old Testament and they're taught now of the apostles in the New Testament. It is true that we are the New Testament church. That is a that's a correct way to speak about us. However, if you sort of divide the Bible and you say, well, we just must focus on the New Testament, we're not looking at the Old Testament, you're cutting off a lot of the Bible. And a lot of the Old Testament is full of narratives that if you will read them, you will find that they map into different situations in your own life. Paul said they are in samples. You will find parallels in the lives of people in the Old Testament. And there's a lot more kind of detailed narratives in the Old Testament there that you have to map into circumstances into your life than what you'll find in in the New Testament. So it's important that we embrace both the Old and the New Testament, and that's part of what the Lord's New Testament church is intended to do, to acquaint you with both stories old and new, Old Testament and New Testament truth, and hopefully showing you how those things fit together. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 makes a statement about this. Verse 11, Now all these things happened unto them for in samples, and they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. Speaking again of the things written in the Scriptures, those things are there for your admonition. They are examples for you, and you can profit from learning them. Verse 12 is a cautionary word related to that. Now, I've found it true in my own life, particularly in darker seasons, times of spiritual melees, where I've had this thought, had the foolish thought, sitting out there, sitting in a church assembly, I've had the thought, I've heard that before. Right? I've heard somebody say that before. And the implication there in in my heart is, I already know that. I've come here to be taught something I don't know. And you're supposed to be the minister. You're supposed to be educated in these things. You're supposed to give me all these new and exciting things. Most of you are Greeks, from what I can tell. The Bible says Greeks look after wisdom. They're always looking for some kind of new teaching. There's a tendency on the part of us to kind of be that way. But that's not really mindful remembrance. You can't remember something you never heard before, right? Now look, you may be a new disciple and you may be learning some things for the first time. That's good. But once you've heard them, after that, for the rest of your Christian life, you're in the business of mindful remembrance in the Lord's church. You're not going to learn something new every single Sunday. And a lot of times, we just need that mindful remembrance. But here's the cautionary word. (laughs) I've been here. I mean, this is so convicting to me. 
because I've been here and probably will be here again at some point. But this is how we are. It's a warning. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. I've said it before, and I think it's true. It's borne out in my own life. I've seen it in the lives of others. That really one of the most dangerous places you can be as a Christian is to think, I've got a handle on this. I got this under control. I got this. Right? I understand these things well enough. I don't really need that. Well, that can easily lead. If you think you stand, do you need to come to church? I mean, one of the reasons that you're coming to church is for mindful remembrance. Well, I got a good memory. I don't need to remember this. So I really don't need to come to church. I'm solid enough. I'm not exhibiting some major sin in my life. I don't really need to come to because I think I stand. Well, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. In any of those areas where you say, I think I stand in this, you are to take heed. You are to consider the mindful remembrances that are put in front of you. And earlier, if you go back over to Peter, he makes a reference to this back in uh, chapter 2 as well. Chapter 2 and verse 6, he says, And turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow. Well, that's just some Old Testament story. It's not really relevant to God's people now. That was in the Old Testament. We're in the New Testament. We don't really look at that. It's not profitable for us anymore. No. Condemn them with an overthrow, making them an ensample unto those that after should live ungodly. You can live ungodly. It's possible. And this is there as an ensample to you. The Old Testament is relevant to what we do. It shows these punishments of people because it's an ensample for you. It shows you what can happen to you if you think you stand you're to take heed lest you fall. That's how you get out of that. Let's look at verse 3. Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts. You see any scoffers out there? Probably any number of us, if, you, if you're out looking at things on social media and stuff like that, you'll encounter people who are just scoffing at Christianity. And many people are very, very hostile to Christianity. And uh, some of it is is quite disturbing, but it's at least an affirmation of this. Peter said there's going to be scoffers, and they're certainly out there. So you can know that much. They're walking after their own lusts. That is, uh, my will be done, not thy will be done. That's the core precept of Satanism, or following after the course of the world, is I'm going to do whatever I'm going to do. Walking after their own lusts. And saying, now look at what they teach. Where is the promise of His coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. It seems to me that these people are in the domain of some sort of Christian religion here. You see what I'm saying? These are not abject atheists. It doesn't appear to me because it says, since the fathers fell asleep, well, there's some reference to the fatherhood of these people there, a relationship to them, if you will. All things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. These people are kind of not denying that there is a creation. I mean, you might say, well, they just say that metaphorically. I suppose that's possible, but at least here it's mentioning that they are referencing creation. And, you know, they're kind of 
They're kind of saying nothing changes. Everything's kind of the same. Why do you think this is going to happen? You know, there are people who in our time would say, well, it's been 2,000 years since Jesus Christ walked the face of the earth. What makes you think He's coming back? He hasn't come back for 2,000 years. What makes you think? Everything's just going the same as it was. He died. They say He rose again. And uh, everything's kind of going down the road the way it always was. And it's almost as though with each passing year, they feel like they've got a little bit more proof that, well, it's never going to happen, right? It didn't happen this year. It didn't happen the year before. It hadn't happened for 2,000 years. But is that any proof that something's not going to happen? There's people who get really excited about buying oceanfront property. And some people are extraordinarily lucky. They may buy some oceanfront property and build something on it, and it may be 50 years, 60, 70 years. Everything's great. They're just going to the beach. Everything's wonderful. But does that mean that a hurricane's not going to come and wipe that place out? It doesn't mean that. Neither does looking back and saying, well, Jesus hadn't been back for 2,000 years. Prove that Jesus is not coming back. But many people regard it as such. This is an expression of their own lusts. They don't really want to believe these things because the moment you buy into believing that Jesus is Lord and He's coming back as He said He would, you are then accountable. There's a Lord you must answer to, and it may call your behaviors into question the moment you recognize that. And it's the accountability of man that is so often uh, what we're trying to dodge as carnal men. They say, where is the promise of His coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. For this they willingly are ignorant of. Willing ignorance. That's where we end up in this. If we're going with just the scoffing carnal mind. Willing ignorance that by the Word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. But the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same Word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. And in other words, there's reference here to the world's been destroyed once before. Now, people are going to say that's foolishness too. Well, that never happened. We don't accept the supernatural, but the Bible is full of supernatural testimony. And the, the fact of the Christian religion, one that I want you all to be very well acquainted with, is that Christianity believes that the truth, the events of history, are a combination of both natural and supernatural events. There is such a thing as the supernatural, the spiritual world, and if you're going to put every event that has ever transpired into a box, it must be a box that includes supernatural events. Now, where your religion gets attacked by the pure naturalists of this world, those who deny the supernatural, is they say some of these events are supernatural. They won't fit into a naturalistic box. You see, the primary supposition that exists among the ungodly who believe there is no God and deny that truth, is that everything just sort of fell together, right? There is no supernatural. In other words, whatever natural things we understand, and maybe a 
a body of those things that are natural that we don't fully understand yet, but may at some point in the future. The solution to what we are, how we are, how we came into being, how this universe came into being is all found within this domain of nature. And they're going to say, you're trying to use supernatural things, but we're disallowing you to use that because our world is only made up of natural things. Well, the Bible is very clear on this. God is supernatural. He is a spirit. He is all-powerful. He has dominion over nature. He can break the rules of nature. He authored them. He can break them. He can change them. He can do whatever He wants to because He's supernatural. He's over and above those things. And the tool that science tends to use to explain this world is often regarded as uniformitarianism. I don't know if you ever heard that word before. That's, it's this idea. It's the idea that things continue as they were from the beginning. Right? There's a set of natural laws... And it's only through the normal process of those natural laws going over and over again that everything comes to pass, right? Now, some of you are building houses, and I know Brother Doug's building a house right now. We're supposed to be praying about that, and we'll find out about that a little later. But imagine if you had to explain the building of a house through just natural circumstances, without any designer any builders actively involved in that? We're just going to use the forces of nature to put a house together. Well, any reasonable person would say, well, I know that over the course of a lifetime from what I've seen, that thing's not just going to fall together, right? I mean, think about the, the amount of stuff that has to be manufactured, you know, from nails to wood being cut to shingles to electrical wiring and all this stuff. It's absolutely preposterous to think that that's just going to all fall together without some designer slash creator slash builder being materially involved in that. We know that. Uniformitarianism would recognize the same thing, but what they do is they say, yeah, but if you gave it enough time, right? It's not just a lifetime. What if it was a hundred lifetimes? What if it was a million lifetimes? And there's all these random things going on. And if there's enough random things going on, then eventually, given enough time, Doug's house would just fall together over there. I mean, it's totally preposterous. There's literally no naturalistic means of trying to explain this world, no matter how much you stretch out the time. It's totally preposterous. But that's kind of what they do. They kind of take this idea and they say, well, if you just stretch it out long enough. The classic example uh, that you hear about sometimes, philosophers will talk about this. A monkey and a typewriter, given enough time, will eventually write war and peace. Right? Now think about that. You put a monkey and a typewriter in a cage, and maybe after a certain period of time, he might hit one key, and it's the first letter of the first word in war and peace, I don't know how long that would take. It would take a long time, probably in and of itself. Okay, now we got to get to the first two letters. How much more time would that take? Now we got to get to the first three letters. You see how you have to expand the time. And it's just, it's absolutely preposterous to think that if you gave it enough time, it would eventually produce all of the pages, with all the words, with no mistakes. It's absolutely ridiculous. And that exercise 
is far less complex than putting a human being together, putting a universe together, and creating all the life that we see on this planet. I mean, it's just, it's unbelievable. It's profound foolishness on the part of man. It's a darkened heart on the part of man that would say, that is an explanation and a creator God is not. It speaks something of the darkness of men's hearts. The Bible does not teach uniformitarianism, by the way. I mean, there may be seasons throughout history where things are sort of going by natural events. But the Bible teaches what I would call radical catastrophism. God created this world, bam, there it is. Six days, He put it all together. I can't explain how He did it. I just know He's supernatural. He's God. He can do it. I don't have to be able to explain it. He did it. It didn't take millions of years. It took six days. It's not hard to believe. What's hard to believe is like, why did it take six days? Why did He want to do it in six days? I suppose He could have just done it instantaneously. But He tells us He did it in six days. He tells us He destroyed the world by a flood. That's not uniformitarianism. That's radical catastrophism. God directed, the sovereign God says, I'm destroying this world. I'm going to totally redo the whole thing. That's what the Bible teaches. It doesn't teach uniformitarianism. It teaches radical catastrophism. And there's another one coming. So we have to reject these ideas and the foolishness that's promoted by them. Destruction of the world, we know that that happened in the past. And he's saying it's going to happen again. But the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. That is the uh, global warming that we are all headed towards. It doesn't have anything to do with fossil fuels or renewable energy, anything like that. Verse 8, but beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. God's perspective on time is not the same as ours. Those people who are saying, well, it's been 2,000 years since Christ died. He hadn't come back. That proves He's not coming back. No, it doesn't prove anything like that. I don't know how long it's going to be. Long enough for God to manage. The God who created this whole world, created all life on it. He's able to manage it, and I believe His Word in it. And our timing is not His timing. We know this, any of us who've raised children, I can remember you used to drive down here to Malvern to see my grandparents, and from southwest Little Rock is probably about a 40-minute drive on Interstate 30. 40 minutes driving is nothing to me anymore. I mean, it's just... But I can remember as a child thinking, man, this takes an eternity to get down here. <laughs> I mean, I, we would see that bridge that crosses Interstate 30 before you get to the Malvern exit, and I'd think, oh, gosh, we're getting close. We're getting close. I was about 30 minutes in. Well, as a kid, that seems like an eternity. Because your perception of time as a child relative to what it is as an adult is radically different. How much more so our perception of time as finite creatures compared to an eternal and everlasting God? Our perception of time is very different, and we can't use this idea that it's been a thousand years since Christ was here, or two thousand years since Christ was here, as any sort of proof that Christ is not coming back. It doesn't even make any sense. God's perception of time is totally different than ours, and He has His timing, and it'll be what He wants it to be. Verse 9, the Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness. See? That 2,000-year thing was, as some men count, slackness, right? Well, he hasn't been back 2,000 years. He's being slack 
That just proves he's asleep at the switch. He's Maybe he's not even there. It's not ever going to happen. But it's not as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us were, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's one of the uh, verses of the New Testament that's raised up against our doctrine. You see, it says here that God is long-suffering to us were, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. See, God wants everyone to be eternally saved. That's what that verse is commonly taught as, but there's an important term in this that you've got to take note of. God is long-suffering to us word, not to everyone, but to us word. This is speaking to God's people. This is addressed, if we go back to the beginning of this epistle, Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the us that's involved in the us word. It is not all of humanity, and that's who God is long-suffering toward in a salvific sense. So we've got to be mindful of God's promise and His timing. Let's look over at Psalm 31. I'll show you something here. 31.14, But I trust in Thee, O Lord. I said, Thou art my God. Verse 15, My times are in Thy hand. Deliver me from the hand of mine enemies and from them that persecute me. Make thy face to shine upon thy servants. Save me for thy mercy's sake. Let me not be ashamed, O Lord, for I have called upon thee. Let the wicked be ashamed and let them be silent in the grave. I think, and in my own experience, the times when I feel inclined to be ashamed, maybe, of my relationship with God is in these interim periods where I want to be delivered and I'm not. And it feels like you you begin to wonder, is God on my side? Is God there for me? Is He going to deliver me? You start feeling a little bit ashamed about it. Maybe people are teasing you about, oh, you think your God's going to deliver you. He's not going to deliver you. That's where the doubt comes in. That's where we have to have faith to fill in the gap. But we have to recognize and be brought to mindful remembrance of the idea that my times are in thy hand, right? We're not going to get deliverance in these things. In my experience, rarely does God's deliverance come upon the first request and come in such a way that it absolutely minimizes your discomfort in the matter. It often comes much later than you would want it to come. Our times are in His hands, and we have to be mindful of that. His promises, His timing, that's how it's going to play out. So how should we live then? Verse 11. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness? Knowing these truths that he's just taught, how ought you to live? Looking for a hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Look, this world's going to be burned up. God is he's going to burn up this world. It's just all there is to it. If your hopes are in this world, if you're in your material things and all this stuff you think you're going to acquire and have, it's all going to burn up. Most of God's people who have lived in the New Testament era didn't live to see the world burned up before they passed out of this earth. So even if you're not alive when the world is burned up, you're still going to pass from this earth and you're not going to be able to take it with you. You're not going to find any lasting satisfaction in those things. So... How ought we to live? Nevertheless, we, according to His promise, look for new heavens and new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. That 
is one of those phrases that you hear in the Bible, you know, well, it's going to be a new heaven, a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. Do we really think about what that means? I know many of you, and I throw my hat in the ring as well, can get incredibly animated about various political injustices that are going on in our society today. It's just maddening, really, honestly. If you take an honest look at the United States Constitution and what it says this nation is to be and what we have become, it is astonishing how far off the mark we are. And that can be very disturbing. I mean, I, I get it. I, I, I'm in the same boat with that. It's, it's very troubling. Why is that? We're not in a world wherein dwelleth righteousness in the way this is talking about. There are some of God's people here with the Spirit of God. They may exhibit some righteousness. They may show forth the love of God in their lives here and there, hither and yon. But this is a world wherein dwelleth righteousness. And I don't think it's a stretch to say wherein dwelleth righteousness alone. That's what this is talking about. This is going to be a world so vastly different from what you experience in this world today. I don't even know that I can describe it to you. I do know this much, however. Whatever degree of animation you have over being discontent with our government, with our leaders, with, our, uh, with all that's going on in our society, to an even greater measure, you're going to be astonished and worshipful in the government you'll be a part of in this day, wherein dwelleth righteousness. However much you can get stirred up and angry about those things being bad, to an even greater degree, when you're dwelling in this place wherein dwelleth righteousness, it's going to be fantastic. I don't even know how to impress it upon you. I just know it's going to be true. It's going to be something we've never experienced. I know we talk at times about having a foretaste of glory divine, and I think we get little pieces of blessings like this from God, little glimpses here and there. But we're seeing through a glass darkly, and there's going to be a time when we see this face to face, and it's going to be wonderful. And we ought to live in mindful remembrance of that fact. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent that ye may be found of Him in peace without spot and blameless. That is the exact opposite of go out and live however you want to. Because you people believe in grace, you say you just go out and sin all you want. That is a total opposite, total lie. You believe in grace, you see how gracious God has been, and in thanksgiving you ought to live in the way that His Word tells you you ought to live. Verse 15, An account that the long-suffering of our God is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul also, according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you. Have you ever thought about God's salvation of you as being an act of long-suffering? How much did God have to endure in you to be able to save you? It's not as though He had to endure it up until He saved you. And from that point forward, you're good. You don't ever do anything bad. He's got to endure you even after He saved you. Until we live in this place wherein dwelleth righteousness, we're still living in ways where our carnal hearts rise up, we get fascinated by the things of this world, the shiny bright objects of this world, draw our attention and worship away. And God long suffers that as well. It's not that we should live that way, but we also can't deny that it comes upon us from time to time. And we should praise God for being long-suffering towards us in that respect. 
Verse 16, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other scriptures unto their own destruction. If every interpretation that someone has of the Word of God is, this is just simple, it's this, then some things that they are explaining are wrong. Because this verse plainly states that there are some things that are hard to be understood. There's not a simple explanation for everything. Now, I think salvation by grace, the core precepts of the truth, this is pretty simple. God does it all. You don't do anything. That's pretty simple. That's not complicated. The relationship between how did sin enter into the world and God's divine decrees and to what extent are things predestinated and all that? Well, these are much more difficult matters and they require some very precise handling. Topics like justification. The Bible speaks about it in several different ways. If you're not careful to rightly divide that, understand what's talking about justification in eternity, justification in the conscience of a man, justification in how other people view you. If you're not careful to deal with those hard issues and rightly divide them, you will be incredibly confused on that topic because it's not just a simple topic. It's not as simple as God does it all, right? That topic has some complexities to it. But it's important to know this, and I want to grab this concept out of here. It says that speaking in them, of the the epistles, Paul's epistles, in which are some things hard to be understood. It doesn't say things which are impossible to be understood. That's important to note. Because a common trick that's out there in the Christian marketplace is to come to a place where someone's doctrine doesn't make sense. You have a bald, logical contradiction. And then you step away from that and say, we just can't understand that. It's not possible to understand it. We just have to accept that both of these things are true. That's a problem. Because the Bible says these things are hard to be understood. It doesn't say they're impossible to be understood. And it's talking about the core precepts taught by Paul. I'll give you a prominent example you can think about. There are many in Christendom today who say that the gospel is a well-meant or sincere offer of eternal salvation to all of humanity. Okay, That is a very common teaching. The Bible teaches that Christ died for the sheep. Now, if the atonement is limited... Christ died for the sheep, and someone is not a sheep, on what basis can the gospel sincerely offer eternal salvation to this person? There is no atoning basis for it because Christ did not die for them. So there are many Christians that say the gospel is sincerely offering eternal salvation to all of humanity, though Christ only died for some of humanity. That cannot be reconciled. It is a thing impossible to be understood because it's a logical contradiction. But that is resolved by recognizing the gospel is not offering eternal salvation to all of humanity. It is declaring the finished work of Jesus Christ on behalf of His people. And those who believe it are His people. Those who hear it and say, I rejoice in that. I've got the ears to hear. By the way, that also means that there are none out there who are saying, I believe that and I really want to go to heaven and I love God and I want to serve Him. And at the end of time... They show up and God says, well, you weren't in the elect, so you're out. That never happens. 
It never happens. Apart from God's grace in regenerating a man, giving him the ears to hear, he has no spiritual mind. He has no desire for these things. He utterly regards it as foolishness. Well, let's finish this out. Verse 17, Ye therefore, beloved, seeing ye know these things before, beware, lest ye also, being led away with the error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness. That verse is very helpful to me. I probably had it in my notes when I preached on uh, chapter 2 and verse 20 through 22 because I made the case that that passage was talking to God's people. It was an admonition rather than just for your information. I said it was for your admonition, not for your information. That verse is helpful in that respect because this verse points out that it's entirely possible and you're warned against being led away with the error of the wicked and falling from your own steadfastness. This is talking to us word. This is talking to God's people. You most certainly can fall into these errors and that's why we're warned against them. That's why it's so important that that section in chapter 2 that I pointed out was talking to God's people. It's important that we interpret it in that way because if we say, well, that's talking about the unregenerate out there. It's not even having anything to do with me. You might miss the point that this is warning you. So incredibly important. It's an exhortation to time salvation. It's an exhortation to save yourselves from this untoward generation by following the Lord. And finally, here's the benediction. But grow in grace. And in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, to Him be glory both now and forever. Amen. Amen. That's really what we're to be doing as disciples. That should be a core mission of the Lord's New Testament church, that we grow in grace, grow in knowledge. That's why we want to study the Bible. I was talking to Brother Thomas Burnett the other day, and he said, we've been really blessed in our church to have pastors who are teaching us the Bible. You know, many churches get up, they might throw a verse up there and and then they'll philosophize for a long period of time with very only tangential reference to the Bible. It's important that we grow in grace and in the knowledge that we find in the Word of God. And uh, that's, that's a primary function of the Lord's New Testament church. I publish an open door to that church. If you'd like to join by baptism or letter, we'll give you that opportunity now. Thank you for listening to SuccessfulSavior.org the ministry of Harmony Primitive Baptist Church. This has been Elder Dan Sammons preaching in one of our regular meetings. Come and join us as we worship God in the simplicity of Christ every Sunday morning at 416 North Hall Street in Donaldson, Arkansas. At Harmony, we don't have many things you'll find in the popular churches of our day, but we do have a successful Savior. We invite you to come and see.